Hello and welcome to the Food Service Growth Show. My name is Carl Jacobs and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Epic Base. In this podcast, we are looking for answers on how to grow your food business. And in this episode, I'm talking to Daniel Spinneth, the co-founder of Crap Affair, and I had a lovely conversation. Hello, welcome to the second podcast uh, of uh, the Food Service Growth Show. Uh, with me, I have uh, Daniel Spinneth, um, and he's uh, the founder and CEO of Crep Affair. Um, thank you very much, Daniel, for joining us. Thank you very much, Carl. Good to see you. Um, so the uh, first thing I'd like to know is, uh, can you, for those who don't know you, uh, explain a little bit what you uh, have been doing and what is uh, Crap Affair uh, uh, standing for? Sure. What I've been doing is for the past 15 years or so, I've been trying to sell pancakes or crepes, um, starting in the UK and now also internationally. Um, my background um, is in fast moving consumer goods, started in hospitality and did a lot of other things, um, was with Procter & Gamble for some time, international position, and uh, kind of grew up with pancakes and crabs and, and always questioned why there wasn't anything really branded and systematic in that area. And, and uh, at some point, I decided uh, for my sins to actually become an entrepreneur and say, hey, perhaps my hospitality and, and marketing backgrounds have served me to to actually start a business around this very well-known product, but has always been more more or less a mom and pop kind of business. So and that's how we started Crab Affair in the uh, 2005, um, initially as an experiment to see whether people would understand and like it. And uh, we found that uh, most people associated crabs as a sweet treat. Some people up north didn't even know what a crab was. A creep crab, what is it? Things have changed dramatically today. Um, travel has democratized. Lots more people uh, get an understanding of international foods. And today, I'm, I'm fair to it's you know I'm glad to say that people understand in this country and many other countries what crepes are. They understand um, that crepes are not just sweet treats, but they are savory meal solutions for all part day parts as well. And um, it's good to see that we've become the undisputed kind of market leader in the segment in the UK, and we're um, and we're growing their brand internationally as well, with uh, presence in in mainland Europe and in the Middle East, and and looking for sites uh, further afield. The idea really was that we, or still is, that we see crabs as a um, as an envelope um, mm -hmm. which you can easily customize. Um, you can use them rolled, sliced, diced, triangulated, uh, various different fillings, adjusted to local cultures. As I said, uh, we're active in the Middle East, where obviously there's a completely different eating culture. And um, yeah, the, the ground principle uh, was to, to build a brand rather than just a product line, which can expand in various different distribution channels, uh, both in the UK and uh, and further afield. All right. Um, just 
first question that pops into my mind is uh, you mentioned that most for most people it's it's a sweet treat uh, it, but it can be everything in 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 today's you know uh, uh, constellation of crap affair how much of the the crepes that you sell or the pancakes that you sell are sweet and and how many are savory or how many are let's say the the the, the more uh, the non-dessert uh, side the short answer is uh, it depends the longer answer is um, it depends namely um, very much on where you are um, if i take uh, and call it an extreme case the middle east where we're now growing dramatically particularly in saudi arabia um, it is a sweet tooth culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, whereas we are effectively also in a savory game, the product is still much seen as a dessert approach. So about 90% of our business approximately in, 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 in that business in crepes is, is, is sweet. Uh, the remainder is savory. In the UK, which is our home market, the situation is dramatically different. Um, and this has really more to do with consumer behavior depending on where we are in a shopping mall, for instance, the general consumer would gravitate towards the more classic lunchtime kind of concepts for their lunch, whether that's pizza, salad or burger or sandwiches, and will see crepe affair or crepes in general more as a sweet treat. And therefore it's skewed to more towards sweet. And also that means that our uh, our footfall pattern or customer pattern is more stable during the day rather than uh, lunchtime or dinner peaks. Um, in other sites where there is more of an off office destination, where uh, more residents, where there is more of a different type of dwell time and shopping pattern, um, it is, uh, it's also savory. We've, we've come to the point where we, on certain sites where we started out, with 80% of our product being sweet, that is now more or less split 50-50. And for us, that's extremely important because we really want to be seen and perceived as a an all-day meal and snack solution rather than just uh, being pinched hold into the sweet segment. And, and this is really the reason why a lot of, um, malls or interchanges that like to have F&B like to have us quite simply because one can fulfill all parts, all day parts. All day parts. Yeah. And the other thing that, 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 um, caught my attention is, um, the fact that you say, um, we are very, and entered on the local cultures. So is there something like the the crepe affair crepe or is it always very local inspired and and how do I have to imagine, you know, the menu yeah. card of crepe affair not just in the UK but globally. 60 to 70% of our product line is more or less the same uh, across the board and this is you got universal consumer taste almost everywhere in the world nowadays. And this is around chocolate, about fruit and, and so forth and so on. Um, again, Middle East, where there is a different eating culture, where there is a halal culture, um, we're catering to other uh, religious groups as well. Obviously, um, their adjustments need to be made. 
We're looking currently at uh, entering the US, um, whereby it's not just about different eating uh, habits, but it's also about different patterns of consumption. People will come in for a breakfast, they will drive to a place to have a breakfast, for instance, where we need to be a lot more sensitive as well to peripheral products that go into the mix when you're looking yeah. at yogurt pots and so forth and so on. So, but in essence, the Crep Fair brand is a hard brand in that we, we have a very clear and strong brand identity. You see that in our color coding, in our furniture. However, we don't want to be seen as a chain. We want to be seen as a group. And the advantage of being a group, it allows local uh, um, outlets and local cultures to adjust um, the menu, to adjust also layouts and so forth and so on um, to, uh, to different cultures. So, so do I understand correctly that a chain for you is a group of restaurants that do exactly the same type McDonald's and a group of restaurants the way you define it is you have a hard brand kind of brand guide but still there is local changes possible. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. I think, I mean, while you mentioned McDonald's, I'm an, an enormous fan of McDonald's. Um, even a, a very standardized chain like McDonald's has some time ago come to realization that local differentiation is very important. Um, if you look at the local differentiation in terms of products and also layout, McDonald's has been leading the way and I don't think there is a need to, to have, there is, it's not mutually exclusive. You can have a very strong brand, but you can still be locally sensitive. I would say that on the other side of the spectrum, and I'm not saying anything negative about it, but it's certainly not something that we are certainly not, would be a subway, which um, wherever subway you go to in the world, they will also have fake, always have fake um, <laughs> uh, walls and a certain product line, and it served them well. It's not our approach. <clears throat> yes, all right. Um, you you mentioned in the beginning that you you grew up with the the crap as a as a product. Is this is there a, like a story behind this, or is this just because you're from? A culture where they eat a lot of crabs. Uh, there's a bit of a story behind it. I, I'm afraid that I cannot really bring into the brand story like my grandmother from Brittany who was uh, having her own recipes and all that stuff. It's a lot less romantic than that. <laughs> I, I grew up in Holland and uh, and yes, that's the country of the pancakes. Um, but I spent a lot of time with my, uh, you know, during my youth in the south of France, where there was this famous crêpe au grand manier stand in Saint-Tropez, uh, which is iconic. And, um, and, you know, I always associated crêpes with holiday, with good times, and, um, and it's a lifestyle product that I've always loved. And again, I think this is where, at some point, uh, the idea came love to do something again in hospitality and take something which can still be created rather than uh, go with a concept uh, like a burger or a pizza or a salad which has already been invented and reinvented a number of times how can we take this simple crap how can we package it promote it uh, define it and, and improve it 
uh, to become a global type of product. And, uh, but yes, there's always been a love for crafts, and I simply sincerely believe that you can only be uh, an entrepreneur if you have a passion for the product. All right. And um, so um, one thing that, that I heard you say is, is, is coffee is an important driver as well. Can you, can you give us a little bit of insight on, 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 on the business side of, of, of Crap Affair? How, how does it, you know, how do people spend their money? Uh, how do people spend their money? <laughs> well, hopefully lo mostly with us. Um, but within Crep Affair, yeah, um, th the idea is um, we are not yet a sandwich. We are mm -hmm. not yet a place where people go every day necessarily as they would go mm -hmm. maybe to Pret-a-Manger um, to, to buy a sandwich. We see more and more loyalty and we see more and more people seeing this as a meal occasion, but crepes are still very much seen as a treat type of product. Uh, coffee um, has a completely different profile. People are intent on having the same coffee very often, every day, uh, sometimes even more than once. And um, we pride ourselves on having a very good coffee and we feel that coffee is a very important uh, part of a business in order to basically get frequency in. And I think that's the, the whole point. So coffee represents today depending on location up to 20, 25% of our business. And the principles really um, be as relevant as you can be, not just with crabs, but with peripheral products that match the crab concept and use coffee really as the frequency driver to get uh, the right people in and to then uh, have an opportunity to also cross sell them on, on crabs. Mm -hmm. All right, and and um, if you if you if you then I, I take then the, the cultural differences that you mentioned in the beginning. Is this everywhere? Is coffee like a global phenomenon, or or also there? Do you need to serve more tea in the Middle East, or or how do you how how does that work? I think coffee is a global phenomenon with some variations, and the Middle East is one where we effectively also do Turkish coffee. Um, but coffee is a, a you know is a universal universal uh, element, and I think mm -hmm. this is where we um, also to our business partners uh, basically explain this 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 coffee effect. It's still a growing market. If you have a great and consistent product, and you have the right training, the right beans, the right kind of approach, there coffee is a driving force. We see ourselves as the coffee plus concept very often. And we also promote ourselves as a coffee plus concept, meaning that we, we do want as well, or sometimes better, what the Costas, the Starbucks and so forth do on the coffee side. Mm -hmm. But we offer that plus, which the classic coffee chains are not necessarily very good at, we find in terms of poor packaged food and, and you know, over, overpriced and not necessarily the right quality that we can give that plus uh, mm -hmm. to the consumer that we can give that plus to any of our business partners that we work with be they franchisees or or other 
where you can easily double or triple your average transaction value using the coffee as a key driver to get the same people in at a higher frequency. Mm, that's uh, that's impressive. Um, let me go a little bit into you know scaling the business. Uh, you you come out of a, a probably well-paid job at Procter and Gamble. Then you say, okay, I want to be an entrepreneur. So you start with a concept. You have the concept in your mind probably a long time. Then you take the decision, the first shop to to open the first shop. Can you tell me a little bit on 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 how you go from the first shop to the second to the fifth to the sixth and so on? Like, how does that scaling process works? Yeah, I think it's a mental process, it's a procedural process as well. I think from going from the corporate world, and I did some things between Procter and um, and and, and Crep Affair, but um, I think you first go through a phase of total euphoria. You have the idea, you're very enthusiastic about it. And then you get to the point where you actually have to fund it and you have a complete white paper in front of you. So the first phase is, is you're scared. <laughs> it's paranoia. It's like, is this going to work? Um, and I think the uh, uh, once you have your first store up and running, which is really a laboratory, lots of trial and error, you learn a great deal from it. And uh, and and it 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 became clear to us after a few months in that this was a concept that was going to work and had the potential to scale. So I think the, the initial stages, and for me was certainly was from the stage of um, enthusiasm and then fear to actually get it up and running to say, okay, now what are the learnings? What can we learn from this first store? What can we learn from consumer behavior? And how do you get to then to store two and then to three? I think two and three were kind of similar you basically pick up the things that you've learned from your first uh, stores. You become a bit more adventurous uh, in certain ways. You also downscale certain things that you thought would work and didn't. You promote those that work better than you thought. Um, and that, that was a process that took about two years to get to store two and three. Um, I think from store three onwards and before you go international or franchising, that's when structural changes start to come in. That's when you realize that um, when you're in your own as an entrepreneur, there's not everything, you know, you need to start delegating a lot more. You need to have systems in place, be they financial, be they communication, be they, be they inventory, and so forth and so on. Um, and you start cautiously. Um, and uh, because in a starting business, there's little money to basically fund this all um, so it's again been a lot of trial and error. I think where we got to now, where we have a business which, um, you know, internationally now, you know, we're not big, but we have 30 sites and there's consistency uh, when it comes to uh, product sourcing and marketing and, and, and other things. And yeah, it's, it's been a jump. Um, yeah. And at some point you need to, when you get to the point of 10 plus, that's when you need to make decisions on investment into systems. And I think that was the key thing that you need to start prepare for growth. All right. And so, so you, you kind of move from a founder led business to a manager led business. Um, how do you, yep. 
how, how do you structure uh, the crap affair business? I mean, uh, what are the the is there an headquarters where you do central uh, management yeah. or is it a, a general manager kind of led business where every business has its own GM or or how does how is crap affair structured? It's 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 a bit a dual structure in that we we tend to give our general managers our restaurant managers quite a bit of freedom, which is part mm -hmm. of the attraction of working in prep affair. It's not too formulaic, but with a clear set of rules as well. Um, how are we organized? Um, we today have a, a a UK CEO. I stepped down as the CEO actually a couple of years ago. And I have the enviable title of founder, which means I can do a lot of fun stuff, such as talking to you today, Carl. And uh, and, um, and 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 so, really, from a day-to-day -day perspective, Alan Kerslake, who is managing um, the, uh, the the business, is very much the the center of gravity in 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 the headquarters, basically managing the team, and yeah, but still very much on a. Uh, on a very collegiate way, in a very collegiate way, and this is what mm -hmm. Crepe Affair is all about. Uh, we're not bureaucratic, uh, but it means that effectively he needs to have a strict control on all our systems. Um, the way we can develop outside of the UK, do new things, new product lines, new concepts, such as Crepe and Roll, which is a new concept we, we just launched, is um, that Alan and I work closely together on on everything which is future so it's fair to say I'm probably more focused on the future on strategy focused on the today and you know the nearer future but it goes hand in hand and I think that um, we've made I've made a great deal of mistakes of wanting to do too many things at the same time focus is always very important and and this structure, this dual structure actually allows us to focus on the things that are important now, but also focus on those things that will be important in the future yeah. and makes the business a lot more fun as well to operate. And in terms of, of, of the, uh, the technology that you mentioned uh, being important to be able to scale, let's say beyond 10 in your case, can you can you elaborate a little bit on which technologies you you uh, initially uh, uh, installed first and and how was there a hierarchy on how you uh, implement those those technologies and and how does the technology stack of Crap Affair look today? Yeah, I think the priority initially was um, speed and efficiency at point of sale. Uh, and then how would that then connect to your back office to inventory management which is really the holy grail to try to get a totally integrated kind of business that has always been a priority we then um, very much looked at how can this integrate as well with real business results and labor management because um, again in a food retail business labor is very often uh, your largest cost factor besides your fixed property and your and your, and your and your food costs obviously which is extremely important to manage well so if you can bring this all together um, that's great and, and I think uh, in the earlier days 
uh, we always tried to find that holy grail of this integrated system and we found that that was actually almost impossible and it's really more of a best in breed approach to take and make a lot of mistakes um, and we made our great deal of mistakes in terms of being sometimes overpowered perhaps by certain technologies or suppliers who said this is fantastic you'll turn around uh, things um, very quickly and easily only to find out that uh, once you pick up a new piece of technology it also includes it also involves your staff getting used to it and wanting to use it I've been in my my past corporate life been involved with much larger companies where extremely expensive technology was brought in and three years later it wasn't working quite simply because there was no cultural fit yeah. uh, with it at all. The second stage really came um, towards when delivery became very important generally in a business where pre-ordering, integration of delivery orders and so forth became very important. COVID has obviously exacerbated the whole need for contactless ordering, pre-ordering and, um, and so forth. So we were one of the front runners with that. And, and today uh, we are operating a, a system which is partly digital, which is still also partly old fashioned. And we believe very much in that dual approach, the high tech, mm -hmm. high touch approach in the hospitality sector being very important. The next step, and uh, I think this is also where uh, obviously you are, with Epic Base are very uh, involved, is really looking at um, how do we standardize recipes? How do we translate certain recipes from one place to another? How do we uh, work, what, which is what we're developing now, on the CPU center production unit basis where certain ingredients need to be packaged, need to be put together and then transported somewhere else. So mm -hmm. I think um, the more you grow, I think, um, and the more you want to centralize certain things, uh, the more uh, the back office type of technology needs to play a much larger role. Yeah. All right. Yeah, as you mentioned, indeed, Epic Base does does do a, a lot of the things that you just mentioned, uh, but that's not what we're I here. Knew to you talk. were going to say that, Carl. That's not what we're here to talk about. Uh, I'm 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 pretty much interested in in something that you 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 uh, you mentioned. Uh, it's 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 the change word. Huh? It is like making sure that the the people that work for you also embrace the technology. Uh, that you bring into the business and um, can you tell us a little bit on how you approach that uh, thing eh? because indeed you can choose whatever software you need but if you have a business that doesn't follow eh? if you the people don't follow then this the software won't do anything in your in your organization how, how do you approach that and especially with the idea of the franchising part how can you convince people that take franchise to use the same technologies that you prefer? Yeah, I think only uh, before we, we, we talk about franchising, I think we need to set the example and we need to be convinced effectively before we convince others. And mm -hmm. the way to do that 
is um, we do quite a bit of research and look around and sometimes steal, shamelessly steal ideas from others that already uh, have implemented certain technology. But I think the key principle to actually getting buy-in is to, to right from the beginning, use your frontline staff, the people who really make uh, the operations work, the area management operations people to, to involve them right from the beginning in the process when it comes to um, whatever system we want to implement. It does not make any sense from a head office perspective to basically come put something in and it's not being accepted. They need to embrace it. Sometimes mm -hmm. you need to, you know, maybe push a bit on convincing to embrace. They need to work with it. But we very much believe that um, it's a big failure or it's a recipe for disaster to basically just impose anything. So involve your frontline staff from the beginning, make sure they understand that they test, that they question, that they challenge, and that they see the great advantages to them and to the, our guests and customers. On the franchise level, um, I think it's a similar story. Uh, once we can demonstrate that it works for us, um, then um, we can demonstrate that it will, will work for them, although not always. We have partners, for instance, in the Middle East, where it's the, you know, the tail wagging the dog because they are a few billion dollar kind of companies that have their own technology platforms and where it makes sense for us to listen to them and understand their challenges rather than impose. Um, what we're trying to do as much as possible is to integrate and mm -hmm. to say, okay, this works for us. This is why it works for us. What is it you do? Can the things that we have right now real be a real difference to you? We do not insist on putting technology into a franchise business just because it benefits us from a control perspective if it doesn't benefit our franchisee because it would be um, the wrong kind of thing to do ethically and commercially. Um, right. And that seems to work. And this is how we have generally created across the board a, 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 a relationship of confidence between our business partners, our franchisee partners, our joint venture partners, investors, and ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, try to find win-win. All right. Um, and in terms of those franchise businesses, uh, um, I guess that at a certain moment in the lifespan of Crap Affair, you were sitting in the office and you were discussing, do we open up the restaurants ourselves? or do we franchise them? What are the drivers in the decision to start franchising? Yeah, and we're still having that question sometimes. And, and, and our approach right now is it's a dual strategy because we believe, and that partly answers your question, I think we believe very strongly in a company owned as a basis for, for development, expansion, and to keep the brand the brand identity alive. What mm -hmm brings or what brought us to franchising or what, what spurs us to further do this is that you realize that you cannot do everything yourself. Well, first of all, you realize there's interest from other parties in your brand, which is always nice to hear. 
And, um, and sometimes, uh, particularly when you look at international development, the idea is basically build a win-win relationship where we have a strong brand identity, we have strong systems, we have products, we have the knowledge to operate it. And the local partner is much stronger than we would ever be to operate in that region because they have the knowledge, they have the talent, they have the cultural skills of that region, the real estate and so forth and so on. And this is where you create that one-on-one -on -one is free idea. Um, inside the UK where um, the question very often comes up, okay, you've got a successful concept, why franchise and why not do it yourself? Um, we, we tend to be fairly London-centric in what we want to develop ourselves, quite simply, because we have the organization uh, that's there. Uh, but, but we cannot be everywhere. And this mm. is where there are very extremely interesting and good opportunities, you know, anywhere in the UK, um, where there are organizations that just have the local organizational presence and where it just makes sense to work together with them to develop the brand and, and create that win-win situation. Um, so there is no deliberate, we don't like franchising or we don't like company owned. It very much depends on where we are and um, how, um, you know, and also on the strength and the chemistry between the partners, which is very All important. Right. But, and I don't know how comfortable you feel uh, discussing that, uh, but I, I'm always a little bit curious, you know, to know franchise, it, it can go very good, but it can also go horribly wrong. Do you have any experiences you can share with the audience uh, on, on things you, you, would, you would say, you know, be careful about this or that and, and, and maybe tell an anecdote about how, how horribly wrong it can go? Or is that something that you didn't experience? Any business that does franchising will lie if they don't, if they say we've only had successful and uh, super stories. There are, you're absolutely right. Franchising can be great and franchising also has its risks. And I think the idea is to try to, you know, leverage the strength and minimize the risks. Um, as a general rule, um, you, you know, if you're working mostly working with individual franchisees, um, these are entrepreneurs like I am, and they have they're strong willed, and that's totally understandable. They put their money into a business, and um, and it, it, you know uh, there there are sometimes arguments or discussions, and the the, the deal is basically not to let those escalate. Um, the key, I think, to a strong franchise relationship is to be very upfront right from the beginning as to what the expectations are from both parties. Um, and then it usually will work. Anecdote about something uh, that has gone uh, terribly wrong. Terribly wrong, I wouldn't say. Um, but uh, yes, and uh, without going to detail, we've had... Um, a certain franchisee at some point uh, starts selling certain things that were absolutely outside of the remit of of crap affair that didn't make any uh, business sense from a brand perspective where we were alerted actually by consumers who said what is it you're doing here 
And then we found out that effectively that was not the right thing. And, and we rectified this. And uh, of course, there was the usual kind of discussion around it. Um, but, um, you know, if you're sensible, one comes to, uh, you know, a conclusion. I think I'd much rather talk about the success stories than, uh, and I think um, we have quite a few. I believe um, we have been exceptionally successful in rolling out a brand in the Middle East, and we're looking at new territories uh, there as well. There's lots of scope, there's lots of interest, whereby effectively we were able to take that brand message and and to take the, the DNA of the brands and, and adjust it to the local culture and whereby our franchisee partners um, actually um, have been starting to add new ideas that are extremely useful for them in a local market but where we also uh, said wow what you're doing here is fantastic can we use your idea in the uk um where some of the designs that are currently being designed that are very much in tune with what what Crepefree is all about because they understand it they like it they love it they have a passion for the brand uh, are just splendid and where we say hey what you're doing there is is wonderful and i think that's um and that's because it's been a great relationship we are having fun together we speak very often together i think a continuous communication whether it's franchisees licensing partners or anybody else is very important and to be transparent about opportunities but also about issues so i don't think we've had real disasters uh not yet knock on wood um <laughs> we've had some real success stories and um yeah we've been uh, we've been very very lucky so far all right maybe before we close uh, the conversation i have one more question uh, about um, the the the, uh, the 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 need uh, for a central production kitchen um yeah. do you do central production today or is this something that's on the on the schedule okay so the the principal idea of crepe affair the classic crepe affair as we know today is that um, um, the products can mainly be produced in each location, in each unit, and supplies are being delivered by our main, or main suppliers directly to those units. So there's no real need for center production. Um, also, the ingredients that come into those units are relatively straightforward and can be locally be treated. So it doesn't or it did not so far make any real sense um now we're moving into a new uh area a new chapter whereby we're looking more and more into simplifying certain things for ourselves and for, for our franchisees we're looking more about, about consistency and speed and where we have just uh, launched a new brand which is called crap and roll which is a centrally produced product that we are wanting to scale and which is now going into some very exciting new distribution channels. We just launched with Primark. We're about to launch also in a cinema chain. Um, we are uh, integrating it into some new partnerships as well, too early to tell. But there's a real need now for this product 
uh, for some production because that's the whole name of the game. Crap and roll is a is a is a freshly produced product. As the name said says, it's a range of sweet and savory crepe rolls filled. Mm -hmm. They are then um, blast frozen and, and are then distributed to different locations, making it very simple for an operator to then regenerate and bake off that product wherever they are, be that a unit, be that a third party location. Um, from a very small footprint. So the whole idea here is how we take the crepe a step further, whereby we make it even more available anytime, anyplace, anywhere, um, to take the, the skill, um, to, make, to make it very simple, to make it very quick without losing any quality. Small footprint, high footfall, low dwell time, speed and quality without um, missing the theater that people still want to see. And this is where um, we, we take the production of the key product away from the operations and mm -hmm. we put it into a center, producing, center production unit whereby the operator can really focus on the theater, on the service, on the speed uh, and on the lifestyle aspects of this, of this new and edgy brand. And it gives us tremendous opportunities for uh, various distribution channels that we're not in, including Cloud Kitchen and, and, and so forth and so on, and store in store. And this is where those new partnerships come about. So key to have consistency, to get that consistency, uh, you need to isolate the production process. And this is where the CPU comes about. So in the uh, terms of crap affair, so today there's 30 of them, where how many outlets will there be uh, in five years time? Oh, uh, at least 10 times uh, more than that, at least 300. Wow. Um, and I should say that's not just the UK, that will be international as well. We believe there's great growth opportunities for crap affair, both outside and inside the UK, as the classic crap concept as we know it today. Um, um, I'm, there is enormous, uh, uh, um, enormous opportunity out there as well for our new concept, crap and roll. Uh, we just talked about um, much smaller footprint, more distribution opportunities, particularly store in store. Uh, other distribution uh, a, in partnership uh, with uh, property owners, but also as standalone units. Mm -hmm. And uh, we believe there's tremendous opportunity for those as well. I wouldn't be able to, at this stage, give you a number, but I would say that we should be a global business with crep and roll as well. And I would say at least also 300 units. And I must say that this is not just going to be a um, a, um, a company-owned strategy. This is also going to be a partnership franchise strategy, which right. we believe makes sense for both brands. All right. Thank you very much, Daniel, for uh, taking the time uh, to have this conversation. I, I think it were some very nice insights for people that uh, want to scale their own business. And um, I uh, thank you very much for being in this show. Well, thank you very much, Carl, and your team. It was uh, very enjoyable.
Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Food Service Crowd Show. And um, please subscribe to the channel if you want to hear more about uh, how to grow your business. Uh, but for now, thank you very much for listening. See you next time.